You're listening to a Reykjavik Grapevine podcast. It was merely a coincidence that I was there at the Harpur the day they arrived. Like most calamities, this one also began with a sign in the heavens. Just as the residents of Moscow saw a comet in the sky before Napoleon's invasion in 1812, or the inhabitants of Woking witnessed a meteor fall down at the beginning of the War of the Worlds in H.G. Wells' book, those out and about in Reykjavik on the morning of May 10th beheld an equally rare sight. Little did we know of what was to come. It might just as well have been a star of Bethlehem bringing tidings of a new dawn, but it was darkness that was about to fall. Aeroplanes were a rare sight over Reykjavik, excepting the seaplane that occasionally brought mail from Akureyri, and that time Italian aviators paid a visit on their way from Rome to Chicago. But such esteemed guests arrived in the middle of the day. This one snuck around the sky like a thief in the evaporating night. The large gunship came to a standstill on a horizon turning red in honor of its arrival. Smaller vessels disengaged from it like ants leaving an anthill and grew larger with their approaching. The morning sun reflected on newly polished steel helmets and perhaps I was just imagining things. But it looked as if some of them had skulls with vacant eyes and crossbones peering out from their peak caps. Hello and uh, welcome to the Alternative History of Iceland podcast. My name is Jon Tristis Eurason, publisher of the Reykjavik Grapevine magazine. This chapter, which I just read, was from historian Valer Gunnarsson's novel, The Eagle and the Falcon, about what if the Nazis had conquered Iceland. But Valer, this is not actually what happened. No, uh, and perhaps wasn't very likely to, but yet possible. Um, unlike most countries, we were invaded by the British in World War II. Yeah, I guess unlike most countries during World War II, but like most other countries in the world, we yes. were invited by the British at some point. To be invaded by the British is not really anything special in world history. It's, uh, it's kind of like, you know, you live in a country where the sun shines every now and then or something. Yeah. It's quite normal. The sun never sets in the British Empire. But in, in World War II, it was actually Germans usually doing the invading. Yeah, and the Brits doing the liberating, although it's maybe sometimes just question of marketing mm, yeah no i think in, in this in this case the british propaganda was actually true the the germans at the time or rather the nazis were actually pretty pretty terrible um so we should be uh thankful that we were being invaded by by the british and rather than the the germans but but the, the key is that on, uh, on the morning of the 10th of may in in actual history, uh, no one really knew what was coming. They just saw ships coming in, and no one knew it was the British or the Germans. And I've spoken to many people who were alive then who, who verified this, that they had no idea who it was. Just to just to make sure that I, I think the Nazis are bad. That was, yeah, just, that Nazis are <laughs> bad. Okay. I'm, I'm within Jim Jones on that one. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> and uh, every other sane, every sane person in the world. Anyway. Yeah. Thanks yeah, to Indiana so, Jones, we, we are. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, on the 10th of May, people didn't know. Nobody, I mean. No, someone 
said that you know well we saw all that the steam coming and exhaust coming out of the ships we knew that they were british because german ships would never be this inefficient (laughs) 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 but yeah then they came ashore and it turned out that it was the british probably to most people's relief although people who were hoping for the nazis may not have been very vocal about it not after the war anyway yeah or, or during the british occupation either nor then so never no, but they may have hoped in secret. Yeah, but uh, they did arrive, and they didn't really have a hard time taking over the place. No. Um, they... Uh, and these weren't exactly, like, these weren't exactly, like, top-notch troops. No. This was on the 10th of May, 1940, which was, quite coincidentally, the very same day that the German invasion of the West began. So yeah. the Germans were invading Netherlands, Belgium, and France on that very day. And even though the invasion came as a shock, of course, everyone knew that this would happen eventually. So that's where the main troops were stationed. Um, there was still ongoing fighting in Norway. And uh, it was also the day that Winston Churchill became prime minister in Britain. Yeah, famously. So... so for every other country in the world, these are the events that are spoken of in history when it comes to 10th of May, 1940. Except in Icelandic history, it was the day that changed everything for Iceland. When we got occupied. Yeah, and some people say that's the, the day when modernity arrived in Iceland, which is but best partially true. But, but uh, politically, it is true, because up until that point, Iceland had been more or less isolated from the world, or saw itself as isolated from the world. You know, World War One, in most respects, passed us by. Mm-hmm. But here, the outside world held the right. World events had arrived, and Iceland was now a part of history. Uh, yeah, I would say everybody, more or less, well, almost everybody alive, well, that's maybe exaggerating, but a lot of people alive or in 1940, May 10th, were born in not a concrete house, not even a wooden house, but in a in one of those turf houses. Yeah, maybe. So um, modernity, even if it had arrived, it had only just arrived. Yeah. And, um, well, in Reykjavik, they had to start to build houses out of wood with the corrugated iron, which yeah. was intended for roofs, but in Iceland, the rain comes from all sides, so they used it for the for the walls as well um and in in the 20s and 30s they had started sort of building out of concrete a little bit yes and there were a, a few houses that that were built out of concrete that we, are, we you know people still live in today yeah well built yeah a lot, a lot of them and, and and pretty earthquake proof yeah thankfully but um iceland was actually in the, the throes of the depression yeah this time the depression here was very severe uh of course we had the same Great Depression that everyone else had, but Iceland's main export market for fish was Spain, and there was the Spanish Civil War, yeah. so that was closed off as well. So Iceland didn't really, really have any any place to export their goods, and um, there were very strict um, uh, import taxes, to- to- tolls, yeah. and um, which actually in some some ways it's ex- existed in, into the sixties and even into the nineties when. Uh, the restrictions on imports. Um, so times were not necessarily good, even if Iceland hoped that this war would also pass them by. But then the British came and the um, and people sort of went down to the harbor curiously. Eventually, the local police ha- helped 
keep the people away from the soldiers while they got around to the occupation of the country, and some Icelandic sailors sailed out and helped them ashore. So Iceland is <laughs> well, willful. Yeah, this is the occupation of the country. But this was an occupation in the sense that uh, there was no former announcement or agreement. The British just came. They just came, yeah. Uh, and they, the only casualty of the day was the the door of the public radio station, which was broken down by the British because it was one of the main places they want to occupy. Yeah. Uh, but they promised to pay for it, so I guess we can forgive them. <laughs> but I mean, they, you know. In in terms of occupying Iceland, they they took over the the radio, the one radio station. Yeah, they I guess they, I guess they must have shown up at the police station, but there there weren't a lot of places they they felt like they needed to occupy per se. No, and uh, in in one uh, building in right in the center of Reykjavik, in front of the Parliament building, it was on one floor there was radio, on on another floor was the telephone and mail. Mm. And on the top floor was the meteorological service, which was very important because from Iceland you can actually predict the weather in, in the North Atlantic sometimes. So, um, so there was just the one building they had to occupy, really. To this is uh, this is the old uh, telephone building downtown, which is now like a lot of things been turned into a hotel, right? Yes, yeah. and it is very recent that I think they demolished mostly the the old building and made a new one. So yeah, yeah. The war didn't destroy Reykjavik, but the the current city authorities are <laughs> <laughs> well on their way of yeah, amazing yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's turning into a bit of a weird cityscape, but uh, that's a different discussion. Mm. Um, so they arrive, they kind of take over, and I guess you know there there's a lot of cooperation locally. There's, yeah, there's not uh, really any resistance whatsoever. No. Uh, the uh, the British ambassador visits the Icelandic prime minister, mm-hmm. and he is told that this will only last for as long as the war. Britain will not intervene in Icelandic domestic affairs, so on and so forth. And and the prime minister goes on the radio to tell people, you know, this is what's happened. You know, we should treat them as guests, but we should also sort of keep our distance. You know, not not associated so much with with uh, these foreign soldiers, um, which, of course, isn't kept, um, as I said, because um, uh, there's a lot of unemployment, but now everyone gets a job, and unemployment just vanishes overnight almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my grandfather drove a truck for the British. Yeah? Uh, I, I have no idea what he was working on, I guess, just building roads and the airport and whatnot. Yeah. I guess they built an airport near Selfos. I assume he was working there. Okay, so they did. Yeah, the Kaldanes. Yeah. Actually, um, the Germans would have wanted one there. The British also famously built the Reykjavik Airport, which is still in use as a domestic airport. Yeah, yeah. And and if you have a private jet, you can you can land it there. Yeah, it is used it's, for... It's cheaper to park a private jet at that airport than it is to, to park a car downtown. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know having an airport in the more or less the exact center of Reykjavik should open up the countryside to people from Reykjavik and perhaps more importantly Reykjavik to people from the countryside. But that's just so expensive to travel by a plane. But so in in, in reality, this airport in the center of Reykjavik is mostly just a parking space for private jets. From yeah, yeah. So much for the 
for for the you know the possibilities, the actuality is just it's a gigantic parking lot for millionaires. Yeah, they, billionaires. There was a lot of those before the collapse, but now they are somewhat back. I woke up to one this morning. Oh, they're they're very much back because uh, it's it's um, billionaire tourists now, yeah. not not uh, local billionaires. Yeah, I think they tend to keep a lower profile now. Yeah. But uh, I mean, next episode. (laughs) Yeah. But uh, okay. So the occupation goes pretty smoothly, but some people do get arrested. Yes. The only uh, group that is very, I mean, no one officially supports it because it is an occupation, but everyone agrees to sort of. to just get on with it and and everybody likes the employment as you said your, your father was there was a lot of construction going on mm-hmm. your grandfather was part of that there was also a lot of women who just started washing clothes for soldiers and, and so on and on but the the only group that was very much opposed to the occupation was uh, the communists who oh. were, yeah who were relatively strong in Iceland they weren't in the majority but they were relatively strong they were also kept outside of government when when the war began, the three other major parties had formed a coalition. Yeah, like uh, across the boards of the war, what do you call these things? Like sort of a, an emergency government kind of yeah, almost. It was a national government. National government is the word, yeah. Yeah, with, with everyone participating except the communists were kept out because the communists sort of took their direction from Moscow. Yeah, and Moscow was currently aligned with the... yes. Nazis? Yeah, so they had an non-aggression pact. So, Which I'm sure was a, a pretty difficult thing to swallow for some of the commies. Yeah, things sort of turned back and forth a lot for them in those days. Um, yeah, the Moscow line was that this is a, a capitalist war, an imperialist war, it's got nothing to do with us, and, and the British and the Germans are equally bad. Um and so the the communists here protested uh, vehemently, and uh, one of the most famous um, actions was when the British were building the airport. Uh, the Icelandic workers went on strike. The um, the Icelandic communists went around with flyers asking them not to take over the jobs of the strikers. This was seen by the British to be asking them to to ask the soldiers to. You know, to to rebel against uh, their duties to mm, yeah uh, to, Decide to yeah to be court-martialed, perhaps. Um, and so the the even the members of parliament that the communists had were imprisoned and sent to prison in Scotland. Uh, this was, of course, a problem because the the British had promised not to intervene in Atlantic affairs, but but now they were arresting members of parliament, sending them to Scotland. So they were eventually brought back. But this was this was one of the most famous and one of the few and, and, and relatively mild um, conflicts between the British and the Icelanders. Actually, the, the largest protest in Icelandic history was when the Soviet Union invaded Finland in 1939. Oh. And uh, that was also a big problem for the communists because here are the Soviets are invading a Nordic country, which... Uh, yeah, yeah, which they didn't really, didn't really have it coming... F- either no it's hard to say that they in any way pose a threat to the russians but then that doesn't always stop the russians from invading neighboring countries it's i mean it's always been it's always been pretty complex to be a be a communist i guess yeah and the neighbor of russia but yeah then that's to some people leaving the communist party 
But, but uh, on on May tenth, they did. I mean, uh, I guess they apprehended the the German consul. Gerlach. Yes, exactly. That was one of the first things that they did. Marched up to Tungata, which uh, yeah, which were the German consul, because Iceland was not technically independent at this time. It was no, so they didn't have an ambassador. Yeah, so yeah. it was still a part of the of the Danish crown. So so, but there were consuls here from the major European nations, and. Yeah, and they arrested him. Uh, Icelandic historians sort of make a lot of this because it's one of the few sort of exciting events in, in the invasion of Iceland when the British come there. Uh, Gerlach is, is trying to get his man and servants out of bed and over to uh, to help with burning documents. Yeah. But he has uh, issues with his arm and is putting on his special vest and, and Gerlach is there self burning things in, in the in the bathtub on the top floor and when the British come in and he has taken out a couple of pistols but he decides not to use them because you know what what why why bother? Yeah. What's the use? And then I guess they they do also apprehend a few German and Austrian nationals who lived in Iceland. Yeah. They're which is a a much sadder story than than the the arrest of Kerlach because they were they were often in Iceland for a pretty good reason they didn't want to be where they yeah, were born yeah and Gerlach was a, a bona fide Nazi yeah and he was later exchanged to the Germans in exchange for a British a British diplomat but yeah there there are instances of that that anyone with uh, uh, German connections was suspicious yeah um, some case arrested and even Icelandic people themselves I mean what often happens is that if there's one group of people that you are you know not that you're allowed to not like people will use that opportunity so yeah people with any German connections would be refused to go to the barber um, stuff like this and actually my um, my grandmother is half German so my great-grandmother is German uh, married to an Icelandic man, and they were part of the um, part of the German community here, and and constantly they lived in Tunka, they were close to the embassy. So my, my great grandmother was in the school uh, across from uh, the street when the the British arrived, and uh, for her children and grandchildren, this German connection was always very interesting. And I've, I've written a pamphlet, and in fact, my next book is going to be partly about this. Mm-hmm. But she was always very reluctant to speak about her German heritage. I think she just learned she's um, she's 12 when the British come, and I think she just learned that, you know, this being half German is not something that you... Yeah, you don't want to <laughs> speak yeah. about. Obviously, a lot of people of German descent uh, moved to the United States, in the, especially after the 1850s and into the early parts of the 20th century. And they were they celebrated their heritage and it was pr- quite sort of prominent until 1917 yeah. when they just absolutely vanished yeah it disappeared almost overnight it's very like, strange because yeah they were even the biggest immigrant group for a while and yeah, yeah. and and they just completely just disappeared yeah from sight you know there were there were bars with german names and there were like you know newspapers in german and yeah. all those things and they just yeah. absolutely vanished because it kind of wasn't yeah, and cool so, anymore. Yeah, and sauerkraut became liberty cabbage. Although that changed back. 
<laughs> could go for some. Uh, freedom Fries and, and Liberty Cabbage. Yeah, Freedom Fries was, was later. That yeah, yeah, of course. But yeah, but they do that. Yeah, but I mean, it, there was there was maybe a big group of Germans in Iceland. Sadly, Iceland had mostly declined uh, German and Austrian refugees, uh, Jewish. Yeah, from uh, yeah in the in the previous years. Yeah, which was I mean doubly stupid because doctors, especially dentists, were sorely needed here, and people with the best credentials applied to come to Iceland, and they were denied, and some wound up in the camps and and murdered. So yeah, so there weren't there were few, but very few who. who yeah, I mean, the Iceland, in. United States, you know, they we we weren't. We weren't great at taking any of these people in. No. Uh, famously. And we've not really gotten any better at it, but that's a different story. Yeah. Yeah. But even so, this was, I mean, even just a few people would have would have done a lot, but there was, yeah, but there was almost none. But uh, the British, I mean, so they they arrived, they took over, it was pretty easy. They, they took a few people and imprisoned them. Yeah. Uh, Namely, the consul, and then and then a few German and Austrian people who lived here. Yeah, and as it happened, a German ship had just previously gone down, and the sailors had been rescued. It was called the Bahia Blanca. Oh, okay. Uh, so they they also got arrested. Yeah, and they were sort of spread out over town in various hotels, and and some of them even had on the girlfriends and this was something that everyone was worried about maybe this is some sort of fifth column they are you know it's a false flag operation or they are sinking their own ship to be rescued abroad and they're waiting for an <laughs> occupation force to arrive but in the event they were arrested by the British and, and actually probably rather fortunate in being in a British prison rather than in the German Navy in the war uh, yes it, it was in the the survival rate in the German Navy especially the submarine arm was pretty horrendous yeah um, the the Brits occupied Iceland for just over a year, but they got around to some infrastructure projects while here. They built the previously mentioned airport, mm-hmm. and that was not the only airport. They also uh, started building a, kind of a naval base up in Kvalfjörður, mm-hmm. and they built barracks in Reykjavik and mm-hmm. in other places, and, and some sort of uh, other sort of, I don't know what you call these, like, you know, communication antennae were put up like mm-hmm. like Grindavik etc yeah so they they and they built roads so there was a lot of work yeah uh and pretty much everybody happy with getting work and any any money that came with it yeah and then you know what 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 then yeah for the british of course are are doing very badly in the war at this point yeah, they're alone, famously. Yeah. And France, France falls. There's the the Battle of Britain. There is an expected invasion of Britain. Yeah. Later in that summer and autumn, and um, and then there's the wars beginning in North Africa with uh, between the British and Rommel. Yeah. And the Italians um, on the other side, and um, so they actually need all the men they can get. For a while, Iceland is is essentially occupied by Canadians, <laughs> which, <laughs> uh, yeah. Which I don't know if we should be embarrassed about that, but I think we're you know everybody's been invaded by Britain at some point. But, but being occupied by Canada is a novelty. Yeah, I think so. It? I think so. I think, yeah, we, I think we should cherish that. That's, yeah. a good, that's a good one. I'm sure they were polite. Uh, uh, absolutely. But 
you know, the, the, the British want Iceland for several reasons. Maybe the most obvious one was that Denmark and Norway had just been occupied by Germany on the 9th of April, a month previous. Yeah. Uh, and so they are worried about the Germans coming here. We'll get to that a bit later. Um, but the, they also um, occupy the Faroe Islands. Actually, they already do that on the 12th of April. Okay. So halfway between Scotland and Iceland. Um, the Americans are formally neutral. Yeah. Uh, but they are starting to uh, to think about, you know, what could happen in, in the North Atlantic and if they get dragged into the war or, or this time Germany is winning on every front so nobody knows how far they will get. So they make a deal with the Danish ambassador in Washington to start to have... Uh, a military base in Greenland. Hmm. They don't offer to buy it, unlike Trump, but they, <laughs> but they get right for a base there, which is, they still have bases there. Um, and interestingly, Churchill Roosevelt uh, may, uh, hammered a deal that the Americans will take over Iceland, which is, I mean, technically Greenland is in North America, but mm-hmm. so it's, you could argue it's for part of the Monroe Doctrine that no other powers... Um, should enter the Americas, but Iceland is, well, part of it is actually technically in North America, but most of it is in Europe and, and culturally. It was European, yeah. It's European, so this is actually quite a big step for Roosevelt to to move his forces farther out into the Atlantic. And this is also the beginning of the, the undeclared uh, naval war between the United States and Germany, where American ships are firing upon uh, German submarines, mm-hmm. even though they are not formally at war. Um, but this time the Icelanders actually are asked, because Roosevelt is neutral, he wouldn't occupy a country, at least not a European country, without asking for, for their consent. So yeah, not, not a European country. Yeah. I think, I mean, isn't like Haiti occupied at this point or something? I don't know. Anyway, whatever. Yeah, most most... Most American presidents uh, some do some something in the in the in Central and Southern America, but yeah, but well, Roosevelt had this good neighbor policy. We'll see. Um, anyway, they the Atlantis quite happily agree because there's a lot in it for them. First of all, the Americans are neutral, so there's le- less chance of invasion. Secondly, because the British are sort of occupied elsewhere. Uh, the Americans are not, so they can ex- send their best troops here. They send the Marines here, which is the only place in Europe where I think they had Marines in in World War Two. Yeah, yeah. Famously, the Marines were busy fighting the Japanese. Yes, but uh, this the time whole war. Not, yeah, but this time they're not started doing that yet. No, no, not yet. Uh, and, and thirdly, the Americans have a lot more money, which is what you want from an occupation. You want yeah, money. I, we 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 got the Ford taste, and now we got. More of that. And now we have the full course. The full course. American dollars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, they don't only, not only do they build a lot of more infrastructure, they also bring Coca-Cola and Yeah. With Coca-Cola comes modernity. Yeah. Again, in That's a sense. It. Yeah. Atlantis already liked going to the cinemas, but I guess there's more American films now. Um, but I think the Americans bought popcorn. Uh, Coca-Cola, Icelanders really, really took to heart to sort of to be the national drink for the last for the next fifty, sixty, seventy years. I think we've gone down a little bit, but maybe I think only with the like slowly after we legalized beer again has, has yeah as the 
the uh, love of Coca-Cola maybe dwindle a little bit? A bit. I mean, of course, kids drink it, but it's sort of the go-to drink to have Icelandic brennevin, which is this really strong aquavit type. Disgusting snaps. thing, yeah. yeah. And then mix it with Coca-Cola to get out the taste. Oh. And, and somehow that brennevin mixed with Coca-Cola is sort of the most Icelandic thing you can get in the later half of the 20th century at least. Yeah, true. Or just moonshine. Yeah, Coca-Cola, cheaper. Uh, yeah, also mixed with Coca-Cola. I mean, I guess that's what I would. That's what I drank as a teenager. I think. So, so did I. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> we were poor. <laughs> um, Iceland sort of does become a sort of big part of, um, well, not a huge part, but it's it's definitely a major player, uh, just sort of strategically, in the. War of the Atlantic, yes. Battle of the Atlantic, which is, even though it's not exactly the most sort of interesting aspect of the war in Europe during Second World War, it's still very, um, it, it, it's, it mattered a lot. It, it was very much the focus of, of, uh, of Churchill's policy was to secure the Atlantic for transportation. Yeah. And he worried much more about that than a lot of the other things that were going on at the time. Yeah. And he did say later on uh, that the only thing that really worried him in both wars were German submarines. He may have been exaggerating, but, but I mean, that's yeah, but I mean, uh, that's kind of like that was the live line. Yeah. And also, like, after the occup- occupation of Norway and, and Denmark, this sort of World War One version of blockading mainland Europe to, for the duration of the war became uh, a lot harder. Yeah. And that's where, where Iceland kind of steps in as it, kind it, of an it, essential point in trying to keep up that blockade. Yeah, but even more so it's uh, to guarantee first uh, shipments of, of, of foodstuffs and material and things to, to Britain. But then, of course, when um, America enters the war, mm-hmm. and uh, they come to Iceland on the 7th of July, I think, 1941. Yeah. And, and of course, on the 6th of December, 7th of December, it's, it's exactly half a year later. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Pearl Harbor happens, 7th of December, 1941. And then um, two days later, Hitler, Hitler somewhat insanely or or perhaps realizing you know to declare war on yeah, probably insane uh, i would say i go for insane here yeah we could maybe talk about his reasons for doing that later <laughs> but uh anyway it didn't work out very well for him but yeah on the 9th of december he declares war on the united states and, and thereby uh, the united states is part of the european war yeah which they didn't have to declare it then which was convenient for uh i i guess I guess nobody was as happy with that as Churchill was. No. <laughs> this, this had been his plan all along, which turned out to, to work, that he knew that uh, Britain could not never liberate Europe on its own, but there was uh, also a possibility of, of America joining in. Yeah, uh, but uh, I mean, you, you can if you look at like Roosevelt's policy, both in the uh, Pacific and then in, in the Atlantic, he wasn't exactly avoiding a conflict no i mean he was was, kind of sort of hoping to get punched yes he was um yeah he was sort of hoping maybe to get the first punch so he could go in swinging because um the american public wasn't too enthusiastic and 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 he he had promised in his in his latest election that he would not send their boys to war yeah um you know uh, 
unless the enemy struck, struck yeah. first. The latest election being in 1940. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but then, of course, after Pearl Harbor, everybody was so Gone so home. mightily pissed off yeah. that the, the, there was no argument anymore. No, no, no. Uh, of course, another thing that happened was that on the 22nd of June 1941, Hitler um, equally stupidly... Um, but for very ideological reasons, invaded the Soviet Union. And in terms of Iceland, this was um, also important. For for one thing, the communists, who had previously wanted nothing to do with the war and, and seen both sides as equally bad, they were now, of course, on the side of the Allies. Yeah, yeah, another conflicting event for the 1930s, 40s communists. Yeah, it was another 180 degree turn. So they were actually now the most militant. They they outright wanted to clear war on Germany. Um, and they wanted to do everything they could to support the British and the Americans because that was the best way for them to support the Soviet Union, which was, I mean, still at that time fighting for, for its existence. And Iceland did, um, by its location, play some part with that. A lot of the land lease aid from from the U.S. went via Kvalfjörður yeah. to, to Murmansk. Yeah, the the convoys yeah. by here. And uh, there's another aspect here of, of the the war in the Atlantic, or the Battle of the Atlantic, which is that, um, well, the convoy system was invented in the First World War, and they'd been using it. Yeah. But they hadn't been, they had been suffering a lot of uh, sunk yeah. merchant vessels. Yeah, because the U-boats were up and running, uh, and they—the worst part was the—I think the—I the, well, don't know what you call this—but it's the gap where the where the Allies could not patrol the skies. They couldn't look, search for U-boats because they couldn't fly yeah. in those areas. Yeah. And uh, Iceland came as a part of the solution to that problem, where they they got they um, started stationing. Uh, Four propeller, like larger airplanes in Iceland, uh, and moving sort of the convoy lines closer to Iceland. Yeah. So they were able to like give air protection, or at least not protection, basically, but they could see, yeah. they could sort of spot submarines on those uh, routes. Yeah. Without yeah. any gaps, and therefore they kind of managed to uh, really bring down the level of sinking. That the or, or damage caused yeah. by the Kriegsmarine. Exactly, there were uh, there were two happy times for the German subs. Yeah, the first one was in in the autumn of 1939 when uh, the British were unprepared. Um, Germans were much unprepared too, but they had stops uh, available that they they could just sink British shipping uh, without much effort. Of course, then the British learned and improved. And found some solutions with with convoys again, and uh, and adapted. But then, when uh, when the U.S. entered the war, they were completely unprepared for this, and not always willing to learn from the British. Uh, and by this point, the the Germans, who had not previously been allowed to sink American shipping, uh, just went and and were now able to sail along the coast of. of uh, the eastern seaboard of the United States and just sinking think, like never before. Yeah, so it was called the second happy time of of um, the Serbs, and then you know, in some ways, uh, it's been said that when Hitler insanely declared war on the United States, this may have been a factor because he realized that uh, by the time 
the Americans would have entered the war full force, he would have won or lost anyway, which by 1944 is kind of true. Yeah, uh, yeah. But in this way, he was allowed, uh, he was enabled to, to just start to try to stop them. Um, so we're in the British bringing men and materials over. Because it didn't work out very well for him, but there is some... some no, 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 the Americans uh, just started putting out liberty ships in four days. Yeah. So yeah. good luck with sinking ships at that rate. Yeah. Exactly. So they, but they, they were. It was called the second happy day. So the subs and that uh, just at the beginning of 1942, and uh, and there were horrendous losses. Sometimes they were in with the Arctic convoys. There were two problems in in the winter. It was of course terribly cold. Um, so um, it's always better to sail in the summer. Except in the summer, it's always bright. So the no respite from the submarines, yeah, so or the, the airplanes. Uh, so the Germans who had bases in northern Norway, they could see you from miles around. So yeah, there are some famous instances where they almost sink all of the convoys, and the, even for a while, the British um, refused to send any more munitions to to help Stalin because they're all getting sunk anyway. Yeah, yeah. but as you said earlier, uh, eventually. Um, they managed to get the situation under control, and by uh, the, the, say the autumn of 1943, at the latest, the war in the Atlantic is essentially won by the Allies. Yeah, I think they. I think it's May. I think it's May 1943. It's already in. Yeah, where uh, they. I think they. Sh- I think. I mean, maybe mumbling the uh, statistics here, but I think the Allies lose about six ships. Yeah, in that May. And the Germans lose like thirty or forty submarines, something outrageous. Yeah. And then it's by that time, like I think, uh, Dönitz even has lost his own son, and I think he just basically calls it off. Yeah. They've lost. Yeah, I think they had like about a, you know, twenty-five percent survival rate. The Germans have said. Yeah, yeah, they 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 had they were building submarines faster than ever before, but they they didn't really have anybody to train the crews because they'd all gone down. Yeah. So they they had no. Yeah, this is called a lack of institutional memory or muscle memory or memory or something. They yeah. just weren't able to uh, bring in uh, good enough sailors to use all these U-boats. Yeah, and, and in the Luftwaffe, they would keep pilots flying until they were shut down rather than to make them trainers after a while, which probably also did it. We have a, we have a danger in this, in this episode to go down rabbit's holes. <laughs> <coughs> we shouldn't be going down. So many... <laughs> Uh, but uh, back on track. So uh, we're in Iceland. Uh, I mean, the occupation is it just it it goes on pretty smoothly. But there's like um, I mean, I I think most famously um, this um, you know give or take we say this is the, is or isn't the beginning of modernity in Iceland. But it's kind of like the beginnings of proper nightlife in Reykjavik. Yeah. Understand. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people have been talking about the corruption of of, uh, of youth of youth in in Reykjavik <laughs> since about eighteen hundred, when there were three hundred people living in Reykjavik, <laughs> and students were coming here, and they would just be, you know, hammered for three years. Yeah, and everyone was worried about their morality. So, but uh, there is, I mean, there have been many uh, novels written about this. It certainly, is a part of the public perception, and and based. In reality, to some extent, these were very heady times because, uh, you know, alcohol was freely available. Everybody had money. There were 
a lot of, of well-dressed men in, in, in peak condition <laughs> coming in. Uh, they, uh, the troops did have permission to buy beer, which wasn't sold in the, sold in the regular bars because they threatened that if uh, you know, just drink up beer at this time was banned in Iceland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And which is the only alcoholic drink that was banned, crazily enough. But but it was, and um, and so the occupation authorities said that you know men eat beer either either you make it or we will import it, and then Iceland won't get to tax it or. or oh yeah, and we we brewed beer for them. I think it was called polar beer. It is, and and it's, some years ago it came back and and yeah, nobody the missed it, and it, and it disappeared again. <laughs> Did it disappear again? It was at least it was cheap, but yeah, it, it had no no taste at all. But all, yeah, but of course, Icelanders in the forties had no idea how to brew beer because they hadn't for a long time. No, true. <laughs> and when beer was reintroduced in nineteen eighty nine, nobody had any idea either. So it's only in about the past 10, 15 years that you have all these microbreweries, and you actually have quite a nice beer in Iceland. Finally, yeah, we yeah. were drinking two types of bad lager. Yeah, until ten years ago. Yeah, so, but yeah, so these were and and this is. One of the perhaps most enduring scars for a long time from from World War Two was that uh, many Icelandic men felt that they were, uh, you know, being betrayed, let's say, or rejected by women who tended to go in many cases for for the Americans, for the Americans, especially the Brits uh, before. But I mean, I, I guess it's. Uh yeah, they they could they they I guess they felt betrayed, but I mean, it was I think they were being outmaneuvered by the Americans who were you know tall, yeah. handsome, well dressed, uh, courteous, courteous, wipe, wipe, wipe their noses, yeah, clean. <laughs> I mean, it was a it was an uphill battle. It was an unfair fight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and I think this aspect of of the uh, occupation years has sort of been yeah the one that kind of lingers on most in memory yeah for, for a long time this was seen as the tragedy of, of icelandic men the fact that they had no hope and and for a while the, there were um, there were institutions virtual prisons were wayward women i'm, I'm making sort of yeah uh, air air quotations, air quotations yeah. here, um, were were sent it didn't last very long but that also uh, left left scars but there was a lot of uh stigma by many people against Icelandic women who uh, who dated Americans and especially after the war many of them did in fact leave with their husbands and, and so yeah. for a while in Icelandic literature it seemed for a while everybody had a rich aunt in the US who would send the best presents and yeah I've actually I've actually like uh, one uh, on a tour with a band on the west coast of the United States we, we stayed with one of those rich aunts okay actually, which is very in a very nice house somewhere outside of Seattle, I think. Okay, and yeah. she had been there. Uh, I, I think she was like probably like second generation or something. But yeah, you know, okay. same same idea. Yeah, in a way. Yeah, and it's interesting to see how that whole discourse has changed because, yeah, for the for twenty or thirty years in in, in literature and even in in film, uh, this is the tragedy of the Icelandic man who who you know who is being betrayed by. His own woman, and then round about the eighties, enough time has passed that it becomes this kind of big joke. Yeah, there are musicals written about you know the sort of loose you know uh, uh, period when when every, everything 
goes. And uh, but then in, in the past decade or two, uh, it's been actually more seen as a tragedy for Icelandic women the way that they they were, were treated by the authorities and and society as a whole. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there was like a, a massive expose about a year ago in in one of in in in, in a local weekly newspaper about one of those homes or semi um prisons up in uh Borkafjörður. Yeah, Klappjörður. yeah. So uh, yeah, it's it's still still lingers on. Yeah, and and even this year there are uh, there was a new book out on on the on the era. Yeah, on on this uh, it's called Austandet, which is kind of a funny word that means the situation. The situation, yeah. But when you just say Austandet in 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 this sense everyone knows that you know that this is yeah that's it's it's that situation yeah it's kind of like the uh, as the troubles tend to mean uh, specific things to the, uh, people in the UK yeah it's the Irish yeah <laughs> yeah I mean it's I mean for all all the horrible events of of World War Two you know pretty much everywhere uh, you know this is of course a very a very small issue but people certainly did see it as a big deal at the time and for a long time after um, and you know it's it's also a bit of a shock to the system with the you know Icelanders at the time numbering just over 100,000 and there yeah, are 50 to 70,000 soldiers I mean of course it, it, it changes the demographic and that must have a huge impact on society on, on yeah, and it's a lot of levels first time that anything of that nature had ever happened here yeah yeah, I mean, there had been sailors coming in throughout yeah, the centuries, like, you know, but ten at a time or something. Yeah, but they would only maybe swamp one village at a time. But this yeah. is the whole whole country, and 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 Reykjavik. That's uh, but there is like a, there's a there's kind of an like a bunch of enduring legacies from the occupation. I mean, we still have that airport in the middle of Reykjavik. Yes, which you know has been a route of endless debates over the past 10, 20, 30, 40 years about city planning. Yeah, because basically the people in Reykjavik want it gone because it's prime real estate. It's in the center of town and yeah. housing prices here are very high so a lot of people want to build houses there. But it's it's one of those things that have become like a, a political culture war. Yeah, yeah in it, a way. It's, it's sort of city versus countryside a bit where and people in the countryside, they want to have ease of access to the center. It's yeah. also straight across from the major hospital so they will always play that card that you know people's lives could potentially be at stake if it's not easy to... Yeah, 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 to yeah. And, yeah, well, you know, yeah. Let's not let's not get into that. <laughs> no, but this uh, is, uh, is, in some ways, that I think. The uh, and the, and then there was like a there was a like a submarine station in in a U.S. submarine base in Qualfjord, the fjord of the Wales. Uh, yeah, well, I don't, know, I don't know if it was submarines. It was mainly battleship because yeah, but into into like later decades, seventies or eighties, right? I think so. Uh, no, maybe no, that's okay. No, sorry, it was just during, my bad. It was just during <laughs> the, the war uh, era that Qualfjord, which is. I don't know, but an hour's drive north of Reykjavik. Yep. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, long fjord. It's also very deep, so mm-hmm. you could have, sail battleships there. I think we long ago went to see where they would actually uh, 
tie them up but with huge chains and you can still see some remainders i think sadly they torn down the barracks that were there. no the, no parts of the barracks are still there uh the whaling company in iceland situated in whale Fjord, yes they still use the barracks for some of their operations they're oh, still there uh, and there's a there's a couple of harbors and one of them and i think one of them in this is in pretty decent shape still yeah big harbors and the oil storage infrastructure for Iceland this is there too and i I'm not sure if it's if it's since the war, but I possibly. Yeah. There's a lot of like I don't know what you call these big ass oil tanks or whatever they're called. Yeah, and then lately there's also the War and Peace Museum, which is yeah yeah, yeah. that one too. There is another uh, war museum in Reidarfjord where there was also a base, but I think these are two or three. And then rare breed the Atlantic War Museum. Yeah, and then uh, I mean. Well, another enduring legacy is the all the barracks in Reykjavik were they got turned into sort of like poor poor people's housing. Yeah. In the uh, late forties and early fifties. Yeah. Uh, because like uh, there was a massive influx of people moving from outside of Reykjavik to Reykjavik, and Reykjavik didn't really have enough housing for all of these people. So yeah, exactly. These kind of shitty barracks turned into not only uh, places of habitation, but almost like a culture of their of their own. Yeah. Yeah. Which, uh, yeah, they were they were ghettos in a way that you wouldn't never yeah, see in Iceland today. Were, yeah, and, they were and, kind of ghettos. And people, kids from there would, you know, be picked upon by other kids at school and, and and other people would sort of hurry through them. But yeah, by the late sixties they had almost all been torn down. Yeah. They moved into houses. Um and and in fact there was a concerted effort mainly to either tear down or to hide um Remains from the war, people didn't want to remember it. For example, Öskjuhlíð, which is in the center, mm-hmm. just this nice hill with a, a pearl and restaurant on top, uh, the pearl. Um, that was barren during the war because it was a lookout point. It was called yeah. Howitzer Hill because that's where, where the main... <laughs> where you had Howitzers. <laughs> we had Howitzers and where... And there are still some really, uh, by by local standards, really impressive... Um, uh, bunkers there, uh, but they planted trees all over the place after the war. Just, I think, I mean, that's my theory to hide the. So, so it didn't sort of show anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's a uh, yeah. There's a bunch of gun emplacements or whatever you call those things up there, um, yeah. and uh, some of the barracks that weren't used as housing, they were actually like sold to farmers and were used as barns. When st- some of them still are. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's one uh, one where I grew up. Yeah. Or a couple, actually, in that area. Which is, yeah, for outside of Reykjavik. And uh, I think the tennis and badminton hall is, is in an old barrack. Okay. Which, is, uh, <laughs> which was a very big one. It, it was recreational barracks. Um, it's almost still exist, but uh, the, uh, probably biggest memento is the Keblavik International Airport. Yeah, and the, and the uh, old U.S. airbase there. Yeah, which was in... Uh, it's only closed down in 2006. Yeah, and uh, in the war, it was one of the largest airports in the world. It was called Meeks, and there were actually two of them, Meeks and Patterson, um, because at that time, planes could not fly directly from North America to Europe, so yeah, a lot of did. them stopped in, in, in Iceland. And then, uh, briefly, maybe to after the war, um, the Americans uh, mostly left, but they came back in 1951 during the Korean War. Yeah. Um, uh, by uh, permission, uh, Iceland joined NATO as a founder member in 1949, mm-hmm. and for and there was a the U.S. 
military base was also the international airport. So I remember in the 80s, uh, it was always exciting. When you went abroad, you could see the the army, the military planes there. Yeah, um, I, I, I was trying to remember the other day whether or not I was remembering this wrong, but I've, I almost felt like you had to go to a checkpoint to get to the airport. Um, Is that just my uh, yeah. my, my five year old memory? Just yeah, no. Up? I think the the checkpoint, which was outside the, the army base, no, I, I never went. Well, I did actually visit it once uh, or twice, but no, um, not yet to the airport. But yeah, because uh, the 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 terminal was not the one you know from now. That only opened in like 1990 or whatever it was. Yeah, was some it, some it, other building. 87, that, yeah. yeah. There was or 87, yeah. Same, yeah. The previous building was something more military-ish. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, and you always had to walk directly to the planes. There were no, uh, you know, gangways or whatever they're called. So yeah, yeah. That was a part of going anywhere was to be freezing in the wind <laughs> while trying to hurry to the plane. Well, well you, you can still do that on a on a on a low fare airline now. <laughs> It'll just drop you off by a bus near, yeah. near the airplane, and you well, at least, get at, least on. at least they have buses. But yeah, yeah, at least there's a bus. But yeah, this this uh, the Iceland joining NATO was actually probably the ma- the most contested issue in in Iceland during the whole of the Cold War because now the communists changed their mind yet again and now the Americans were the enemy. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's they must have been so hard to keep up as a communist. But they were they were fairly strong. I mean, the conservatives were the strongest party in Iceland, but the conservatives they had a considerable following and. And every year they would organize the the Teplovik walk, where people would, I think, drive to the the base and protest, and then they would walk all the way back to. Reykjavik. Do you mean the communists? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you said you, you said oh, okay. Yeah, the communists. You said yeah. conservatives. Never mind. Yeah, no, they were bigger, but the communists were yeah. also strong, and they would. And I mean, of course, it wasn't just communists. Especially later on, in the, by the seventies, it was all sort of peace, peaceniks and and. Yeah. Uh, how, how does it go? Iceland or NATO? Iceland or NATO? Yeah, Hedenburg. Yeah, uh, there were these slogans: uh, Iceland out of NATO, the, uh, away with the army. We, uh, yeah, um, and actually before this, but in in the mid forties, the the conservatives and and communists cooperated in government quite well. Uh, but after Iceland joined NATO, this was no longer possible, and uh, even after the Cold War ended, it. Was still some bone of contention. The the Americans uh, they had much less presence here, but they still had presence here mm-hmm. after the end of the Cold War, right up until, as you said, two thousand six, when the remaining four fighter planes uh, and their support helicopters were sent to Iraq, and the base was closed down. Closed down. But there still is a NATO base which has different contingents from NATO countries, and now with the war in Ukraine, there is more activity up here again. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of U.S. military personnel was sort of uh, went through here in those fifty years or whatever. Yeah, um, uh, it's, uh, yeah, because they had a lot of operations. Not only were they did they have that base up in Keplavik, they had you know these radar stations. Yeah, that was only only for for a short time because it turned out not to be so necessary as, as the technology improved. No. But by the end of the war, the Americans actually asked for four bases in Iceland. Yeah, and f- got famously turned down by uh, by uh, Olo Tors. Yeah, who's the uh, prime minister. But the compromise was that they did get the one. Yeah. They did get the Chaplavik base. And there is 
I, I mentioned this in, in a chapter in my book, What If White Kings Had Conquered the World? Yeah. Uh, I was actually quoting uh, another author there is that you know, one possible post-war scenario for Iceland would have been that if all these bases had been accepted, the American presence, which was still considerable, uh, would have been that much greater and Iceland would have become sort of a northern Okinawa, which was... Yeah, and I think I think the... Um, like I, I'm, I can't remember, but I think this is talked about in that book Dreamland by. Uh, yes, that's Andrei. that's the author I was quoting. Yeah, Anders Magnusson. Anders Magnusson, and I think the rationale for then Prime Minister Olaf Tors was that he kind of said like, if if we do that, it would just be a monoculture. Yeah, and I don't want to. I don't want to preside over a monoculture. That's that's not going to be. We're not going to have our own culture going on here. We're just going to all be working. Yeah, on these bases and. And there will be no, you know, Icelandic anything really. Yeah, and this was a huge fear for everyone. Yeah, not just the communists, but also the conservatives, even though they were pro NATO. Yeah, uh, I mean, he was he's he was the con- he was conservative, conservative uh, PM. Exactly, but even so, uh, conservatives were terrified about the impact that American culture would have on on Iceland. And yeah, especially, conservatives. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and especially the Icelandic language and. I mean, that conversation still exists today, but at this time, as we pointed out, Iceland became uh, finally completely independent from Denmark in 1944. Yeah. While Denmark was occupied by Germany and we were in, in some way occupied by America. But uh, so as a newly independent country, sort of trying to rediscover their roots, trying to establish themselves as a nation among nations... Um, you know, the American influence was always a huge worry. Yeah. Uh, there was no TV in Iceland at the time. It's only radio. But the American base in Keplavik had its own TV station. Yeah. And so people in, in surrounding areas in Reykjavik, um, it's not so far away, started buying TVs to watch. Uh, yeah, called, called the Yank. Yeah, Canin. Yeah. My parents, they remember this coming home from school on Saturdays and they would watch Bonanza and, yeah, yeah. and, you know, have gone will travel in all these TV shows. My father, who uh, was a priest, priest's son up in Borkanes, he uh, he watched Cannon. Yeah. The Yank. Yeah. And, and Bonanza and all these shows too. Yeah. I mean, everyone loved it, but it was also worried that this would corrupt an Asian's youth, um, which of course... Yeah, we, I, I, I'm, I'm glad those people had never heard of the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which is, again, see... Uh, so the challenge to Icelandic today. But so in nineteen sixty six Icelandic TV was formed and this was shut down, but there was uh but there was always some sort of reaction that even if people disagreed on, on, on having the base that there was you know, everyone worried about the cultural influences. And even in some ways Icelandic rock and roll sprang up in the fifties. So yeah, out of out of Keplavik. Out of, I mean, Keplavik. out of the, the the base. And that kind of, I mean, it kind of makes perfect sense, I guess. Yeah, because they were close to the close to the roots of rock and roll there. Yeah, and they were actually invited to play on the bass if you were in yeah. a band, and that was a good way to get practice and money. and money. You could buy beer there. I'm not drinking beer, by the way. This is <laughs> sparkly water, but in a can. <laughs> really, it's not beer. Really, <laughs> sure it isn't. Uh, but uh, we haven't gotten into what if. We haven't gotten to what if, and we've been talking for an hour uh, for for a while now. Yeah. Um, what should we should we uh, should we come back and talk about what ifs? Yes, let's talk about what ifs. So, um, in my novel, uh, in your novel, yeah, 
örninn og fólkinn, which means the eagle and the falcon, the eagle in this case being uh, being the German eagle, falcon is, is the national bird of Iceland, called the Waller, which incidentally is my name. Yeah, I feel like we're always plugging your books on the <laughs> I try, Hal. I try. <laughs> <laughs> but now here we can't help it because this is one of my breakthrough novel from 2017. Well, I mean, I, I, I don't mind doing it at all. Let's go. Let's go. In your novel. In my novel. Uh, which, which you can get online. Yes, you can get it online, but only in Icelandic, although a Danish um, uh, translation is expected, which is called the common one, which is completely different. It means they came in the morning. Oh, okay. yeah. That's, that's, yeah, it's a very different title. Yeah, I'm reviewing it now. I hope it will come out in 2024. If, if any American publisher is listening, uh, I think Valor is looking for a... An American <laughs> book deal. Sure, the Falcon sure. is looking for an American book deal. <laughs> yes, different eagle. Head. But uh, yeah, but in that novel, uh, it's it's an alternative history novel. It's an alternative history novel. I don't use the most likely scenario. I, I in fact, I, I prefer to use the one which I think is most picturesque, which is what if Germans actually had come on the. On the morning of May the 10th. Instead uh, of the British. Instead of the British. 1914. Which was never going to happen because they were occupied elsewhere. Yeah, they were kind of busy invading the Netherlands and France, yeah. Um, but that was it was more getting into the mindset of the time when people were worried that this could happen. But in order to make this happen, I do tweak history a little bit. Um, which is that I have the Norwegians surrendering in two days. Yeah, just like uh, Danish style. Yeah, which is what did happen in Denmark. They surrendered it in about six hours. Um, the Norwegian king happened to be the brother of the Danish king. Mm-hmm. Um, the Germans intended to take the king and the government and the national waltz and everything on that first morning on, on April 9th. But the Norwegians managed to shoot down the... The main battle, uh, the main... The, the the main landing crew, they, they, <laughs> the, the, the battleship Blocker, which was the the flagship of the invading fort. Yeah, from the Oscar Fort or whatever oh, yeah, it's called. Oscar Fort Fortress. They, exactly. they, they had, which incidentally had very old crew cannons. Yeah, nobody uh, was really sure that worked. They had three of them. They had enough people to man one, so they put the cooks on the other. Yep. They, and they completely blew that battleship. Yeah, with the lucky shot, but uh, but also with the. Uh, uh, with all fortresses on the other side, uh, torpedoes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is something that could very easily have gone differently. Um, that yeah, yeah, it was a lucky shot. Yeah, and just I, I think I read something about that that particular fort and and that day, and it was yeah, it was it was <sighs> you call it bad luck for the Germans. It was not the odds were not on the Norwegian side there. No, and it was also even not clear. I mean, by rules of engagement, you should fire upon unknown vessels who come too close to your shores without themselves. But so far during the war, the Norwegians had never fired upon other ships because they wanted to keep neutral. Yeah, yeah, and, and, the, and the Brits had been like sort of trespassing a lot. Yeah. And they hadn't shot upon them. Yeah. And they had no idea who this was, so they could also just have, have let them pass, but they didn't. Ship sank, uh, and the government and the king... Uh, with all the the gold of Norway, managed to to escape Oslo, uh, and and as Norway fell, which 
took all two months because Norway is a very long, narrow country <laughs> with a lot of mountains and a lot of fjords. And uh, Norwegians are stubborn. Yeah, yeah, especially. And very good at skis. Yeah, uh, and both of those things particularly uh, apply to the north. So, uh, so Norway um, and and its very considerable merchant marine were, were remained on the Allied side, but. In fact, the first limited victory against Germany was in Narvik in northern Norway, mm-hmm. where uh, they lost almost all of their destroyers, uh, their main battleships, the Scharnhorst um, and Gneisenau were badly damaged. And after this, uh, apart from the Bismarck, the German Navy wasn't so much of a factor. So in this scenario, if the Norwegians surrender... Would, yeah, to do you, still this, have a, you still have a German Navy. Yeah, which... Obviously, would not have been big enough to tackle the British Navy, but it gives them slightly bigger odds. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, the Atlantic Ocean is big. They might have made it through. Yeah, no, it's 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 more likely than than if if uh, the invasion of Norway happens as it did happen. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and in my book, you know, spoiler alert: <laughs> <laughs> uh, the occupation lasts. Uh, because because the the German Navy is more of a threat, the the war goes slightly more badly for the British even than it did in that first year. Bad as it was, yeah. Uh, but I actually end with the main characters escaping to Greenland with the Americans entering the war because if Iceland had been occupied by Nazi Germany, the first order of business when the U.S. entered the war would have been to occupy Iceland. It was just and. They would have done it, obviously, um, been able to. So I don't even pursue and, it that and much. And the U.S. Marines again. Yeah, probably, because this would have been their first first major engagement. It instead, would have of, been a, instead of Water Canal or whatever it's called. Yeah, it would probably have been a very big deal in in, in uh, historiography. It would have been the first major battles also between Americans and, and Germans yeah. uh, instead of Catherine Pass or those battles in, in North in, Africa. In, in 42, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, so yeah, this is my my novel, and I also have the Nazis trying to make an atomic bomb in Iceland, which isn't very realistic. But they did try to do that in Norway. Yeah, with heavy water. Yeah, with heavy water. Um, so and Heisenberg. So that's a plot of the book. I mean, but that is a novel. But I wrote another book. <laughs> <laughs> Just which um, listen again, American publishers. Yeah, this one is actually available in English. Called, oh, uh, what if Vikings had conquered the world? Oh yeah, that one. Yeah, um, yeah. we've heard about that one. Yes, on this podcast we before, may yeah. have mentioned it once or twice before. But in that book, I look at the more realistic scenario, which was actually the one that was uh, uh, drawn up uh, because Hitler kind of had a thing for Iceland, uh, not just for sort of, you know, mythological racist reasons, but uh, also because he really wanted to get the British to surrender without having to invade Britain. Yeah. Both because it was practically very hard and also because he kind of liked the British Empire and, you know, white people ruling or just all the people that looked fine to him. So he didn't really want to interrupt that, just wanted to dominate. Aryan enough for him. Yeah. Um, So he had, after the... Fall of uh, he already ruled Denmark, Norway, France, and the Low Countries, and he had the Kriegsmarine and the German Navy draw up a plan to invade Iceland after the occupation of Iceland by the Brits. Yes. All right. So this is in July nineteen 
40. This is Operation Icarus. Yes, because the, uh, the German naval commanders were so unenthusiastic about the prospect of invading Iceland that, you know, what about that Greek myth about that guy flying too close, close to the, the sun, sun and, and just dying. crashes and burns? And, and Yeah, so let's call it Icarus. And <laughs> the, the basic plan was that uh, they could perhaps slip past the, the Royal Navy and occupy Iceland. It would be difficult, but not impossible. In fact, they had done that along the Norwegian coast. Yeah. But once having occupied Iceland, they would have almost no chance of supplying it. No. And they would have... Uh, uh, they would just have lost it again. So... Um, uh, so that was the plan presented to Hitler, um, never put into action. No. But this is when you're dealing with alternative history, and if it's not just pure speculation, all we can really use are plans that were drawn up and, and not put into action. So this is something that potentially could have happened, mm-hmm. but very probably would have gone the way that the German naval commanders... Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it would have, yeah, I mean... Assumed. Yeah. So... I mean, uh, Operation Sea Lion, the invasion of the British Isles, was pretty flimsy too. Yeah, they, they were... It, and that, never put into execution. No. But this would have been a part of the Battle of Britain and a, and a fairly important part, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, it would have been... <laughs> the occupation of Iceland would have been a much bigger deal, and it's certainly for Icelandic history. And I think this is where you would see the major changes, because a Battle of Iceland with maybe the Germans being in Östjylid and their uh, version of Howitzer. Amphibious landing in Falfeder or something. Yeah. Uh, and Iceland being fought over and probably being destroyed either by half to house fighting or, or by the Royal Navy just, you know, blasting everything inside as they later did in Normandy. Uh, we would not, because war to us is partly a war against American cultural dominance and, you know, uh, mammon, maybe the yeah. effects of mammon. Yeah, money. It's about it's about money, but it's also it's also called the Blessed War because it saved Iceland from from the Great Depression and and in just a few years and decades turned Iceland from being one of the poorest countries in Europe to one of the richest. Yeah, because all the money flowing in and then martial aid enabled Iceland to buy new trawlers and turned fishing into a major industry and and Which still is and yeah. still most one of the most in, uh, important industries yeah and that's been doing pretty well since so uh, in that sense we we have a very different view of, of the war than almost everyone else we you know but we re- yeah, we reap the benefits and none of the massive costs really yeah i mean there is like there is this statistic about um like the 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 merchant seamen or fishermen who who uh, drowned or got killed during the war makes up for a a significant portion of the population. Yeah, per relative, capita. Yeah, relative. relatively speaking. So there's that statistic. Uh, but apart from that, I mean, there were like hardly. I mean, we can't almost not even speak of air raids. There was like one, maybe. Yeah. In Seydisfjord or whatever it was? That's the one famous one. Occasionally, German uh, spy planes or planes with... Like contours or something? Yeah, exactly. They were the, the ones who could fly out of Norway, the few uh, long-range 
planes that the Germany had could fly all the way here, um, and occasionally they would shoot at something or someone. The, really, the only famous raid was the one on, on the oil tanker El Grillo in Sadie's mm-hmm. Theater. When a couple of I think, children were so someone lost killed, a leg. One, I yeah, I think one was killed and one lost a leg. And you can still see the hulk of that in Sadie's Theater, which is on, on the ghost design. Still leaking oil. It's still leaking oil. Somebody's brewed the beer named after it. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. yes. <laughs> Local tragedy turned uh, entrepreneurial <laughs> local brewery <laughs> inspiration. But yeah, but uh, nonetheless, it's true. Uh, we we didn't really have uh, anything like nearly as traumatic happening here as happened in most other countries. Yeah, and in fact, you know, not only was it not traumatic, but it was it was and, and, beneficial. And, and the death of Icelandic sailors, um, you know, I mean. Tragic as it, as they were, I mean, lost. I, I think I I, I, don't, I lost my great grandfather probably in a, a submarine raid. Oh, really? But uh, the the point is, like, uh, it was far. It happened out at sea. It happened far away. Yeah. And it was happening all the time anyway. And nobody needed a submarine to get to to, to drown at sea anyway. So no. it didn't really like have that effect. Yeah, and that's uh, up until the nineties. There were regular ships going down yeah absolutely uh, all the time and and these was usually the crew were from one town yeah and the whole town the whole village would lose all their men yeah. in one sweep and so instead of having war memorials you often have memorials to drown sailors yeah but uh, of course uh, proportionally though uh Iceland did lose uh, more men in 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 World War Two than I think U.S. Uh, I think I think it was four hundred and fifty fifty yeah. thereabouts. But I mean, absolute terms is still not very much. And a lot of them were, I mean, either they, either they perished because of the difficult conditions. A lot of them were shot down by U-boats, by U-boats, uh, German U-boats, and uh, but because all of the British sea vessels were put in service of the navy. Then uh, Icelandic ships took over uh, importing fish to Britain or exporting fish to Britain. So that that was their contribution as well. So, but yeah, but uh, so then these, but these stories would all have looked very different in the event of a German invasion of Iceland and an actual battle. And then it would not be the blessed war or the good war. It would have been a terrible war. Yeah. It would be there would be damage, deaths, yeah. trauma. Yeah, everyone would have known someone because it was still a small society. Yeah, and it would have, have lingered on in in uh, Icelandic historiography to this day. So it would have it would have changed the Icelandic perception of the war, although not the war itself. No, no, definitely not the war itself. Yeah, I guess it it, it makes for good. Good alternative history novel, but uh, it's it's it dries up sort of pretty uh, fast if you if you as an alternative um, sort of option because you know even like you said even if they take an Iceland they couldn't have hold in it they couldn't have held it so it's it's kind of like uh, it wouldn't have changed nothing it wouldn't really have uh, lasted a very long time etc. No, which is why in the novel I raise the stakes by them having tried to build a nuclear bomb here. Yeah, yeah. Just to outs- keep, yeah. outside the range of yeah. British bombers, which. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but yeah, but yeah, but again, what's interesting is that this is this is the great I think counterfactual of Icelandic. It is. I mean, uh, I was saying before we started recording, it's the first sort of war. World War Two counterfactual. I remember even thinking of yeah, like while like hurting cows or something when I was twelve. Yeah, my, uncle, my nephew, 
like, oh, what if, like, what if the Germans would have come? We, we'd all be speaking German now? Yeah. You know, whatever the 12-year-olds thought about that, but, but we thought about it. Cause, yeah. Because, you know, we're, we're nerds. Yeah. But I mean, but ever since, uh, or even since before it happened, then people have, to have wondered, but what if? But next time we're going to be talking about events that we ourselves remember. Yeah, finally something we actually <laughs> we actually remember ourselves. Yeah, moving uh, through the realm of lived history. Yeah, the 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 two thousand and eight economic collapse of Iceland. Yeah, A.K. Thrunit. Yeah, in some ways equally as dramatic, I think, to those who experienced it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with uh, another episode on the two thousand and eight economic collapse. Take care. The book, What if Vikings had conquered the world and other questions of Icelandic and Nordic history by Valur Gunnarsson is out now on Salka Publishing. Find it on salka.is or the Grapevine online store. This has been a Reykjavik Grapevine production. For news, events, culture and travel advice, head to grapevine.is.